This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 209. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lon Ramayasha. And today we are continuing with our pair of podcasts discussing the work of Gengaro Tagame by covering his newest release. His second all-ages mainstream work, Our Colors. A beautiful story about two gay men from different generations, different ages, forming a friendship and realizing they have a lot to learn from each other in terms of self-love and embracing themselves and their lives and the potential of them. And we had a really fantastic conversation on this series with On Ishii, the translator of Gengoro Tagame's work, the one who's really been his ambassador in terms of getting his work published in the U.S. And it was so fantastic to talk about our colors with her, especially because she really thoughtfully talked about how the book, you know, really moved her in its exploration of love and different forms of love. And I really, really was glad to have on back on the show to talk about our colors because as you remember, when I interviewed her two years ago, she broke the news that she was publishing our colors and she was translating it. So it's been a long time since then, but you know, if you've been listening to podcasts, this is probably where you heard our colors was coming first. And oh yeah. So we had to talk about it absolutely. You know, not just for that reason, also because, you know, I am we're both fans of my brother's husband. Uh, I'm a big fan of all Tagami's work and this work in particular I was so excited for because, you know, after my brother's husband was his first exploration of telling a story about gay people, you know, from a straight person's perspective, kind of like, you know, uh, spread the olive branch and like say, hey, hey, you know, here's me teaching you about gay people and like learning, hey, you know, this is about empathy and understanding. This goes even a step further than that by centering, you know, gay protagonists and their struggles with still some really thoughtful observations on what good allyship looks at in the female character's perspective. So I thought it was a great continuation of that that hit even closer for me because it was centering really felt queer experiences and you know so i was so excited for that and definitely delivered uh and yeah so it was a fantastic conversation we had and very much looking forward to you guys listening to it for sure um i just want to say even if on didn't break the news on our show we would have covered it regardless (laughs) of course i mean that would have been obvious uh yeah this ended up being a really good book it is quite also amazing that Our Colors comes out five years after the publication of the first one of My Brother's Husband in English, too. So quite a journey. Quite a journey. <sighs> yeah, no kidding. Um, I personally can't wait for Tagabe's next all-ages work in particular. And that's not me diminishing his um, his more erotic comics. Um, those just aren't really for me in general. But still, I love his comics. So, you know, I look forward to the next time he can come out with something like My Brother's Husband or Our Colors. Because, you know, I, I think he genuinely tells really great, sweet, emotional stories, you know, just about people and the kind of, you know, unfortunate emotional turmoil that is, you know, basically just trying to be yourself. But anyway, with that being said, um, I really can't wait for you guys to listen to our Art Colors discussion. Uh, I will say, stay tuned after the discussion. 
right before we get into community shoutouts, because Lum and I have even more thoughts on our colors that we can't wait to share with you guys after our discussion with On. There were some things that we weren't able to talk about with On because she had a limited time to record with us, only about an hour. So we basically got as much we could done in that hour, but there are some key parts of the story that we didn't get to discuss. There's one in particular that uh, we both really want to discuss, and then I also have some stray thoughts before that that I, I want to get out that I just didn't bring up. So we are going to talk a little bit more about our colors after we close our discussion uh, with Anne before we head into the wrap up of the show. Yes. Yeah, so just, just so people know that when you're listening to the discussion and you think, oh, why didn't they bring this up? Don't worry. We'll bring it up after we close our discussion. Just wanted to put that out there. Yeah, we didn't forget it. You know, and it's an unfortunate thing is that we did actually talk about the big thing that we wanted to bring up after we stopped recording went on. And we actually talked about it for five minutes. I'm like, <laughs> man, we should have just kept recording. I wish we had OBS running or something. So we could have just gotten <laughs> and we could have splashed it in, but it was an oversight. But yeah, actually, you know, since we did talk on Angle, we'll also share her perspective on that when we get to it as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, but before we get into that, uh, Lum, at the time of this recording, you just got back from San Diego Comic Con. How was that? It was very fun. It was a new experience. I had never been to San Diego Comic Con. Didn't know what it would be like or how it would compare to other cons I've been. It was really, really smooth, really, really enjoyable because I think that they had a great line management system in that, you know, there are a ton of entrances into the center and everything is spread out really well. So you're no lines to get in. This is not going to be like an anime NYC situation where you're waiting like an hour plus to get in if you arrive unluckily enough in the day. And, you know, also, it was really easy to get into panel rooms, like, even after they started, you know, there obviously were very high demand panels where you did have to line up early enough, but it wasn't a case where, like, every panel was something that you had to line up over a half hour in advance for. Also, you know, the main attraction, the main reason I went there was to be on the Best and Worst Manga panel that Debawaki hosts at San Diego Comic Con every year. And I was able to panel alongside, like, an amazing, amazing group of people. Jillian Roots, Riley, the Omnibus Collector, Laura Nezut, Abraham Bridget Alverson, and of course Deb herself. And it was just really cool to just pan alongside these really great people whose work I've been following for such a long time and, you know, get a lot of different perspectives, highlight a lot of different titles. And, you know, it was my first panel as well, the first time I've ever been on a panel. And so I was nervous, but I seemed to have done a good job. So Devin sent an invitation to, uh, to have me back if I was interested next year, which was very kind and definitely something I'll absolutely consider because I did have so much fun. And it was so much fun meeting a lot of really cool people. Like, not just my fellow panelists, but also I got a chance to meet Shane and Garrity, who I've said on the show before. A huge forward influence to me in terms of uh, really getting to manga, learning about a lot of manga because of her, you know, live journal, Overlook Manga Festival back in the day, as well as her writing for House of a Thousand Manga. And I met a lot of people, you know, working on the publishing side. You know, I met with a lot of people from Gedansha. Uh, we had a really 
really great conversation with folks just across different publishers. And I really, really, you know, kind of just appreciated being able to meet so many great people. So I will go more into like my thoughts on Comic-Con. Both Wheeler and I, since Wheeler and I both went, we'll go more into our thoughts on Comic-Con. Uh, we're going to record a podcast uh, retrospective or podcast like kind of uh, con report like we normally do after uh, we attend a con. So you can look forward to that coming uh, as soon as I can get that edited. And yeah, you know, we'll have more extensive thoughts on like everything we did at the con, uh, all sorts of different interactions we had. And yeah, it was a really, really cool experience. And I was really glad to be given an opportunity to come. I'm very happy for you because I, I, I was following your guys' tweets like throughout the weekend as best I could. And it seemed like you guys had a lot of fun. And, you know, you got to meet a lot of cool people. You got to go to that Dragon Ball concert. That looked really fun. I'm I really want to go to one of those one of, one of these days. That looks so cool. <laughs> yeah. You know, we are joked about it, but if you want us to come on <laughs> another day another adventure to talk about it, you know, it is technically <laughs> Dragon Ball animated related media because the whole thing is basically one long live AMV. Um, we might set something up because I would like to hear about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall, I'm, I'm glad you had a lot of fun and uh, I really need to go to one of these like outside cons one of these days because... Uh, San Diego Comic Con in particular actually looks really, really fun. So, yeah. I mean, especially compared, if you were given the choice to go to STCC or Anime Expo or even New York Comic Con, I think of those choices, I would definitely recommend STCC uh, as an experience. That's interesting because I always just assumed, because uh, for the longest time, I never really had an interest in going to San Diego just because, like, I always just assumed, like, oh, I might be kind of too crowded for me. Like, you know, that that was a big reason why, you know, I had at first thought about going to Anime Expo at some point, but every year, the more I saw general attendance increase and increase year after year, it honestly kind of turned me off of the idea of going because it just, it just looked like it got way too crowded to the point where I feel like I'd be uncomfortable going there personally. Anime Expo is insanely crowded, and it was insanely crowded this year from what I heard anecdotally, and not only that, it was not very safe in terms of how many people were, like, in an area at the same time. Yeah. And also, mass management was not very well done, both from kind of staff being hands-on and making sure people were masks, but also, like, attendees following protocol. But I will say, you know, a lot of people made this conversation at SDCC mass management was really smooth like people were being responsible and you know if someone was having their mask off staff was on point like they were on the ball like making sure people got masks and also making sure just in general that a lot of safety measures were being taken and they were doing all this like without even having like bag checks into the convention center or a lot of other rigorous protocols you normally expect at cons. So uh, I was very impressed at how like smoothly it all operated and how generally like everyone was pretty willing to follow the rules. Uh, That's so good. I thought, yeah, it was it was really, really remarkable in that way. 
Mm, that's good to hear. Um, yeah, point being, when and if I go to one of these cons one day, yeah, I think San Diego Comic Con might be my first choice. Either that or um, I hear Otakon's pretty cool, but Otakon I would go to specifically so I could visit Sakaki, but you know. Yeah, I mean, by the time <laughs> you're listening to this podcast, uh, we will have come back from Otakon, V-Lord and I. You know, so again, we'll also have another Otakon report with Sakaki and Jekka and Marion about like our experiences there. So look forward to that. But yeah, I also would recommend Otakon. Otakon was a very similarly fun experience and also similarly smooth where I felt like, oh, it's actually pretty easy to traverse around and get into stuff. And also people are generally being pretty responsible or at least as responsible as uh, they could. So yeah. Yeah, I also would recommend Otakon a lot. Okay, well, oh, I'm just crossing my fingers. One day I can hopefully make it out to one of these cons. I would really like to. That's got to happen one day, but we'll get there when we get there. But I guess until then, I mean, like I said, I'm glad you had fun. And uh, I'm looking forward to listening to your guys' con report when that eventually comes out. But until then, I think we should get into our discussion of our colors. That's right. You know, it's time to really paint a portrait of what makes our colors such a colorfully beautiful manga. We only get a new Gengor Tagami manga in English once in a blue moon, but when we do, we're always tickled pink to read it. And we are here today to discuss Tagami's colorful new manga, Our Colors, which is printed all in black and white, but really portrays many shades of queer experiences in a compelling story about a friendship and kinship between two gay men of different generations. And we're joined to talk about our colors today by none other than its translator, as well as the executive director at the Asian Arts Initiative in Philadelphia and the host of Movers and Makers on YPBS, owner and co-founder of Massive Goods, <laughs> and all-around amazing writer, Anne Ishii. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I love that. It's... That was the best introduction ever. Thank you. Thank you for joining us to talk about this wonderful book today that you helped bring over to us in English. And I've been so excited to read it ever since I interviewed you a few years ago now. And you actually uh, broke the news that you were translating and it was coming out. So ever since then, I've just been so excited to read it. And it definitely uh, lived up to my colorful dreams, I will say. So, <laughs> I love that. Can I just say real quick, because um, I wasn't on when we interviewed Anne, you know, all those years back, I just really want to say um, thank you for your work on this and My Brother's Husband. I think both of these are like legitimately some of the best manga I've ever read, especially My Brother's Husband. So I really want to thank you for your work on both of these. Wow. I, I'm so touched. Really, really thank you. Um, my thanks to you as readers. That's That's the best thing I could hear. Oh, definitely. We absolutely are huge fans of his work and definitely want to champion and spread the word about them. And yeah, we're so thankful that you've been doing so much for bringing over Tagami's work, both his all ages stuff and his erotic stuff, The Passion of Gengar <laughs> Tagame coming out in two volumes. The first one's already out now. So that's another one I'm excited to get my hands yep. on as well. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Now, our colors does not go to the spicy side of Tagami's work. Not as uh, many fluids, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) It is kind of similar to My Brother's Husband, where, like, if you read even, like, a couple pages, like, you can, and you're not familiar with Tagami's other works. You can tell dudes that Tagami's interested in drawing. I mean, I will say, when Amami is introduced, uh, Emmanuel's introduced, and, you know, my eyes were going a few different places. I'm like, oh my god, this guy, this guy is totally a big dilf. My first thought when I first saw Amamiya was, is this buff Miyazaki? Did Miyazaki go to the gym? <laughs> Honestly, yes. <laughs> I like that a lot. That's, oh that's really good. Buff Miyazaki. That's really good. Yeah, Gabley. Because <laughs> I think Miyazaki also has like his own cafe, right? Or am I misremembering that? That sounds right. I think at his offices, the Ghibli offices have a cafeteria that he cooks at. I think it's maybe there's a cafe. I don't know. I've definitely seen him in an apron before. There is a Studio Ghibli cafe. I don't know if he serves there uh, directly. Yeah. <laughs> that would be really funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, screw directing anime. You know, yeah. working at this cafe. You know, that's I want to be a barista. <laughs> I mean, if I were Miyazaki, I'd do it. I'd make the career change, honestly. He deserves it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we should probably talk about, like, what our colors is about for those who haven't read it yet. Yes, and I want to turn it to you, and like, as a translator and someone who knows the story very well, how would you describe our colors and describe the story for people? Um, the story focuses on a high school uh, junior named Sora, who is a budding artist. And, you know, in a nutshell, this is a coming-of-age story about a boy who realizes he is I mean, he knows he's gay and is just really reckoning with how and if he's going to come out. And he has friends who sort of help him figure that out, including, as mentioned, Mr. Dolph, Mr. Buff Miyazaki, <laughs> uh, Ama Miyasan, who owns and runs a cafe by the seaside. And um, their friendship and relationship is really the the sort of navigator of that story. But um, it's also, I think, the central sort of conflict of the story is this question question of coming out. And I I don't take for granted how important that is for a lot of folks. But in Japan, you know, the context is different. The cultural context is different. So, you know, it may not be as obvious to publicly come out to everybody. And that is not a failure. Like, so in the story, if he doesn't like get on the school podium at the gymnasium and announce his sexuality, that is not a failure, right? Whereas I think in a lot of Western narratives, that's the expectation, like, I'm out and everybody's going to know it. But, you know, not to not to stereotype, but I do think the coming out narrative just does look different in this context. But I like that about the story. I appreciate that, too, as, you know, everyone has their own individual experience and with their comfort level and, like, who they want to come out to and when. And especially, you know, there's a particular context in Japan for the queer community, I know. But even just uh, on, you know, a personal level, you know, I personally never really made a big announcement coming out as non-binary or as bi, only to a few select friends who I could trust. And really, that is still continued. And I know a lot of other people who similarly just kind of act that way. It's not something that they hide, but they are very selective in who they confide in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Tagami does a really good job of sort of 
playing with our expectations. It's not who you think gets to find out first or gets to be a part of that journey. But it's clear Sora is the person in question does take sort of authorship of his own identity and that's what's really important right is like that he does it with dignity so it's not under anybody else's terms and you know and that then that's really what makes that story kind of special for me at least yeah and the recognition that the reason that he just doesn't come out to everybody is not because he feels like a sense of shame about his identity and that's a point that i thought that was really well explored and discussed in a conversation between now and he is no it's not about a shame thing no it is like yeah. a, an anxiety thing but it is like something that he comes to feel more empowered that he can do it that he can break down the wall and get it after it it takes a lot to finally give him the push to finally be able to tell someone and feel that he can trust them and then later you know it takes a situation where you know he just can't like suppress like kind of that anger he's feeling about you know being misjudged or misunderstood but I really appreciate that Tagami explores kind of that area where it's like coming out to some of the situations uh, you'll find yourself in that pushes you to do that. Like it's something that really depends on your comfort level and it depends on like who you really want to know and you can trust with knowing. And for, I think, Sora, it's like he wants someone who can really understand and accept him and he wants that from the people who are closest to him and he loves most of all. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I mean, you're you're also speaking to, you've mentioned trust, but, um, you know, it's also sort of understanding what love is, right? So the sort of love he experiences between his friends and then the crush he has on that boy and, um, you know, what that means. And maybe friendship is more significant than romantic love, right? That, um, right. yeah, those intimacies can really look different. And um, I think it's actually quite profound that, you know, his friendship is actually much more important to him than this, you know, fantasy of a love affair um, that he wants to entertain. Yeah, I think that's a point in the book that might have left some people a little wanting is that he never does confess to his crush right. uh, and let him know. But yeah, I totally really understand that viewpoint of like, no, he really appreciates his friendship with Yoshioka. Yeah. And at this time, you know, maybe in the future, he will feel like, no, I want to let him know. But you know, right now he is just more comfortable hanging out with him as friends yeah. and doesn't feel the, the need right now to tell him he recognizes that. I mean, he was struggling with that question for most of the book. It's like, do I really want to tell him? Do am I am I'm envious of all these couples that I'm seeing who can do that. I want to do that with Oshioka. But I think he finds like kind of a sense of peace in his identity that is like, you know, he was afraid that, oh, these are things I'll never be able to do. Find a partner, have a family. But now I can see no like the future is well not to get right to the, the direct <laughs> visual metaphor at the end of the book but it is a blank canvas it is what i make of it and i have a lot of freedom so i don't have to worry about rushing things or like feeling that i'm boxed in right now and there's no path forward for me yeah can i just say real quick uh when i got to the point where like uh sora and yoshioka were kind of on their like 
you know, quote unquote date, you know, date, but not really. Uh, You know, the whole time I just kept thinking like, oh, I'm going to get ready for heartbreak. I'm going to get ready for rejection. I was I was getting ready to like start sobbing. But I'm so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad I didn't have to go through that. But I did have a bit of anxiety where it's like, oh, I feel like I know it's coming and it's going <laughs> to oh, destroy sure. me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot of moments of dread <laughs> that I felt in reading. Oh, totally. Even though it's such a, you know, it is a gen- really optimistic and affirming story but uh, there are a lot of just very real moments of dread of like oh my god his mom is finding out about the cafe yeah. how is she going to react and at the end of like oh my god this hurricane uh, they can't get in contact with Alamia and we see the wreckage of the cafe and it's like oh my god no <laughs> there were a lot of dead flags in their last interaction please don't <laughs> tell me and that uh, was a, such a relief that it not, did not go down in that direction. Alamia's wife just comes into the restaurant at at one point, I'm just like, oh no, what's gonna happen here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially when she's like going over, you know, his past right in front of Zora, and you see the patrons they leave it. It's like, oh no, oh yeah. no. Oh. You know, I hadn't thought about how much intrigue was building up in this story until you just named a lot of the suspenseful moments. And it's funny because when I first read through this story, I was really shocked and pleased at how everything resolved itself. And it's not even that, like... I don't think some of those secondary characters had any significant, you know, moral arcs. But all that matters is that Sora comes out of this feeling whole right? Yeah. yeah. I feel like it was really just about how this is a boy who's really taking care of himself and that we shouldn't assume like his parents are actually pretty chill and surprisingly, you know, sort of mature about the situation and he negotiates conflict with his friends and is able to even have some teachable moments with older generations and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I know like, it's just really nice. And I wondered, part of me wondered like, is this like Tagame's form of mercy? Because the world is so hard right now. Like, as we all know, and historically in his work, I mean, his main characters are brutalized and punished, and like the whole the whole point is that the, there's some sort of ecstasy in that misery. But this is such a departure in that way too. There's just you know the victories are really really subtle. There's no brutalism. Yeah, I found it a very comforting and again, optimistic. And I think that's what he was going for. Like he wrote in like his afterward and in an interview I read with him about the book recently that his goal with the book is like thinking from the perspective, you know, as a gay teen, I really didn't have someone to confide in. Uh, I didn't really have a community where I could feel like it was okay for me to be out and being gay. Uh, so this is like a book I'm kind of writing with my younger self in mind. Uh, I'm writing for kind of both young gay teens who are feeling in a similar situation today, but also like older gay people who maybe have gone through this experience and maybe have gone through a similar arc like Amamiya of being closeted for so long and really struggling, grappling with being true to themselves and finding that moment where they were feeling like they could come out and they could truly embrace that side themselves like openly to people they trusted and yeah i really found that intention of the book just so heartwarming and honorable and it really touched me deeply yeah i agree 
It did feel like a little love letter to himself as a child. It was really nice to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that mentorship, that relationship between Sora and Amamiya, I like that Amamiya is coming from a place of like experience. You know, he is giving Sora a lot of advice about how to not live with the same kind of regrets that he ultimately felt that he kind of encumbered for himself over his life. You know, he's coming from that experience and we get a sense for a lot of the early book that, oh, like this is a guy who's just really mature and just really knows very confidently how to live out and proudly as a gay person because he says, oh, it's not a secret I hide from anyone when Sora first asked him about it. But as we come to realize, you know, that is something that has been like built up over years of hiding, years of feeling ashamed of himself. It's kind of reflections on what he feels like, oh, I I should have not felt that way. I should have had this different perspective and I'm trying to help this kid who I see a lot of myself at at his age in to not go down the same path I did. And I really appreciate that aspect of his character, but I also appreciated that Sora, on his part, like, is providing uh, Mia someone, an example of strength in confidence in themselves in a completely different way as well because when you know Amamiya is talking to Sora of like hey do you feel maybe a sense of shame about being gay like Sora's like oh no not really and Amamiya's like oh wow you know I'm impressed with that because you're farther ahead of me than I was and as we come to learn like in Sora Amamiya found like his first true gay friend uh, in nearly 60 years of his life and that was as valuable for him as having a mentor figure in Amamiya was for Sora. I really appreciated that it was a mutually healing relationship and friendship that they formed with each other. I think that's the thing too is I mean there's certainly a mentorship there but that's friendship right it is reciprocal and so I think that's really important also in acknowledging any peculiarity people might have felt around the age gap is really important to note like intergenerational relationships can still be really important and rich and healthy if they're reciprocal and I know that a lot of older folks you know, derive a lot of their dignity and pride out of their ability to have these relationships they couldn't in normal cultural standards, like in his own family, in the family that Amamiya created for himself, for example. And, you know, I think, you know, Tagame and I have talked about this separately, but just it is complicated for a lot of older men, I think, especially who have started families. Like it's actually, there are two different ways to see this person as a deadbeat dad or you know, as somebody who's been able to redeem himself by befriending somebody who really needs his support and friendship and love. So, you know, I think to be able to kind of color those aspects of the relationship in this way is really important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many shades there. Yeah. <laughs> many yeah. shades to how a person may be perceived, you know, mm-hmm. in different lights. But yeah, I definitely really like that ambiguity and like how we, you know, understand Alamia's like history is that you, you can really empathize with like the struggle he had for so much of his life, like kind of holding that secret in, but also the sense of desperation uh, that would lead him to, you know, when he has that opportunity to finally live himself, just take a chance to get that clean break and the way he ended up leaving his life and family just because he was feeling, well, I, I'm afraid of being trapped here if she won't sign the divorce papers or if she doesn't let me leave. So, you know, it's a very complicated situation that you can feel for everyone in that situation. Ooh, it's messy. 
Yeah, but it's explored and presented in a very mature way. I mean, after the confrontation between Amamiya and his wife in the cafe, you know, you're left to think maybe for a minute that, oh my god, is this going to, like, explode even further? Like, what is Yuko gonna do next? Uh, like, where, where is this going? But then we see, like, the next time we check in on them, they're having a very kind of mature conversation going over, you know, how they feel about the situation and, like, making their cases to each other about like why they want to live the way they do and they come to an understanding by listening to each other and you know ultimately recognizing and respecting them and I really appreciated just seeing that yeah and uh yeah. In general, I also just appreciate a lot of just how maturely a lot of characters take uh, different, you know, interactions, different conversations that could be blown up in the book. Like when now finds out that Sora is gay and they have a conversation about it the next day and they just he is able to just outright just tell her, yes, I'm gay. And then he feels that sense of relief and feels good about, hey, I'm telling my best friend and I'm happy about that. Uh, and similarly, again, when he's like telling his parents, I appreciated that like when he comes out, like his mother is first is like trying to feel like, oh, this is a tense situation. I got to diffuse with humor. But his father says, no, this is something serious and important for Sora. And they give him the space to speak and just listen to him and understand him. So I appreciate just again, just examples of people just taking the time to really understand <laughs> other yeah. people, uh, empathize with them and just like respect back to how they're feeling. Yeah, totally. I really like how characters like Now and Sora's mother, how they clearly never known anyone who's like, you know, openly like homosexual before. So like they, it's one of those things where it's like, they don't know how to treat Sora other than just treat him like a normal person, like you really should. But like, at least with, I mean, the both of them like mean well, and they want to learn, especially with now who like, you know, tell Sora like, hey, if I say something stupid, like you can tell me like she doesn't she wants to actively avoid like microaggressions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, you can be angry at me. You don't have to be alone. And just hearing that, it makes Sora so emotional. He goes about to cry because, yeah, he finds someone who is, like, really there for him. Like, he felt like he was alone for so long in keeping the secret. So to have someone say that, no, you don't have to be alone is yeah. Yeah, so much to him. That was a really powerful scene to me. And, yeah, I, I really do find now and Sora's parents really nice examples of allyship. Like, people who have not had a lot of experience with queer people in their lives before but you know when someone important to them comes out they you know they make mistakes but then they take the time and understanding to learn from those mistakes and try to understand how Sora's feeling like I really like Now's arc in particular where at first she's not very careful about just saying Sora's gay in public especially like uh, when Sora's like complimenting her about her looks and he's like oh what am I supposed to <laughs> take <laughs> I'm supposed to take from a gay guy and then Sora's like no don't say that out loud she has like an oh moment there and it takes a little while for her to understand how he's feeling it takes like being confronted by Mizuki not being able to tell her like the truth and everything that is going on between her and Sora that she kind of comes to realize oh keeping the secret is really hard and it really sucks and this is something Sora has been dealing with for so long and I understand that now and I really appreciated that her coming to that realization rather than because like I was worried for a moment that oh my god is she gonna feel like some sort of resentment to Sora for being put in this issue but then she immediately makes the right connection of like oh no I am feeling now what Sora has been feeling for so much of his life yeah I'm glad she doesn't like make it about her 
and like how comfortable she is. Yeah, there are no villains in this story. I mean, everybody kind of comes correct. Yeah, and I think you know. I mean, you said allyship, and I think this is modeling. So I think, like we mentioned earlier, this is Tagami's version of a story he wanted to hear himself as a teenager. Mm -hmm. And I think ultimately, I do think queer youth coming of age actually need to know that that's possible, right? Absolutely. And I think readers who are in Nao's position also want to know what that looks like as well. But that means all of the warts, too. So, I mean... Yeah, there was a drama. I I think, honestly, I'm still kind of struck by this idea that perhaps we were sort of anxious about the drama unfolding because we know Tagame is capable of brutality. But in this case, the motivation is totally different for writing this book and the audience. And um, it is sweet that everybody is just using their heads. And yeah, yeah. I find it refreshing that way because another reason why I, I was worried in so many parts of the story that, that it would go in a particular, like, more drama-filled direction is just that a lot of stories about coming out queer narratives do tend to go in that direction. A lot oh, of totally. them do it very well, but it's still also, and also not just that, I mean, even in real life, in real life especially, uh, a lot of these situations, they can go in a much more catastrophized direction uh, and very unfortunate the cases and so there's that real life uh anxiety as well and in, you know for me i could also see so many situations in which i would dread a, you know particularly with the idea of sora like kind of creating a mask for himself when people are being like homophobic in a joking way about bl manga or then when like people are making heteronormative assumptions about him like his mom thinking that he and now are dating and that he might want to have sex with her later and <laughs> yeah, like the fact that and what's hurt more even especially hurtful is like a lot of these people he knows are like well-meaning they are not saying it to be like cruel but that just like makes him feel all the more isolated and alone that it's like he can't outright get mad or reject him he just has to kind of put up a wall like this mask to hide how he really feels because he, he's just not comfortable yet kind of you know outing himself and declaring honestly how he feels about that to them the moment in the beginning where he is in the middle of his classmates like basically bashing gay men and you know he sees yoshioka kind of join in and then you see his mask kind of crack because you could clearly tell visually that like really hurts him the visual metaphors in this series are quite frankly really amazing like i i just love how clean and readable the art is but there's some really powerful visual moments all throughout this book I am just astonished with Tagami's art style and that how, yeah, clean it looks. Like, it is, like, when I see, like, backgrounds of the city, like, it is still very detailed, very foreign, but, like, the look is just so pristine. It feels like there's no, like, extraneous. Every line has just such purpose and yeah. just such form and purpose. And when I look at his pencils at the back of the book and I see, like, oh, my God, like, he draws art that looks so polished and so much <laughs> like yeah. the finished arc or already in the pencil stage and just a masterful draftsman he is yeah no i think you're totally right and that style has also just evolved so much in the last several years it's like a confluence of the subjects changing i mean this is definitely the highest number of iterations of woman i've seen him draw <laughs> yeah no I, I feel like i heard him talk about it in, in the interview that i read where it's like yeah this is the this is the most i focused on a, a relationship between a man and woman character and that yeah. was a challenging <laughs> and he's certainly 
I, I mean, I've seen his depictions of women in past work, and it's like really uh, not not because he's misogynist at all, but just because it's in his adult work, it's just like so grotesque and so much more um, visceral. Whereas the gender diversity in this story and also their youth, you know, those are two things that are translating in different ways from his past work. And then lastly, the last factor is he's getting older as an artist. So, you know, his, his uh, methods have changed a little bit. He's doing more digital. I think this was all digital, even the pencils. So, you know, there's, you know, those are elements of this production as well. And I feel like I'm seeing that just from having worked with him for over the gosh, 15 years now. So, you know, that that was kind of cool to see play out. And, you know, like to your point, he, I think also like his line work is really exceptional, but he's trying to do sort of emotional atmospheres and he starts to use these like watercolor tones, but it's still in pencil, right? Or sort of just renderings of what, what to convey Sora's obsession with the color blue, for example, in a two-tone, in a monochrome book is pretty awesome. I thought that was great. Yeah, Absolutely, for sure. and that's something like he had to the consider for the series is that it's going to be a book printed in black and white. So how yeah. with color is such an important motif of the book? How do you communicate that? And I think that he communicated that sense of you know different shades and hues and the essence of paint really well. Like when Sora is just like kind of walking out in like the very opening pages, and we see like kind of these blotchy watercolor paint like just framing him. Like you definitely get a sense. Uh, even in just a black of light of this idea of like oh like he's thinking of these palette of colors he's just been describing mm-hmm. and we have like several like really uh, vivid examples like that I feel throughout the book where we get like a little bit difference of a, of a style in shading and coloring that gives you kind of that sense of like oh he is like envisioning the world in like this painterly perspective and way that I really appreciate so yeah to be able to do that just purely in black and white is pretty amazing Amazing. I am sad though that the, we can't see some of these color pages. Like, oh, uh, same. Yeah. That I'm sure that I were in the magazine serialization, right? Especially for like the opening couple, which you know it leads up uh, over a couple chapters to the revelation. Oh, we are seeing Sora's paintings. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're yeah, both yeah. perfect images that are like describing how he feels in the chapter. But like then we see them in the story itself as oh, these are the paintings he's created. Like as we see in one scene, like like later at night he comes so convinced out his frustrations and his art like these are those that we are seeing and i really love that revelation well with any luck these stories will be optioned to film and we'll, <laughs> we'll see very resplendent color representations of the story but no i think you're right that's an unfortunate loss in the translation is the uh, yeah the front matter in the magazine serializations but I guess I'm just taking for granted that, of course, I was looking at the magazine material, so I did see them. But you're right. Those are little snippets. The other thing is, like, he uses language, too, right? Like, uh, Sora's name. It's... uh, Sky. Yeah, exactly. So there's a double entendre with Sky, and then the fact that they live by the ocean, you can just kind of picture waves crashing, you know, and like when he describes blues, it's in the context of, you know, things uh, we can presumably experience ourselves. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, like when he's like describing the scattering and then when he describes like the seaside, yeah, those are things that like most people can really envision for themselves. And so I think that he does do a good job of like describing colors in a way that you can really picture because you've had experience with them. You can in your mind's eye see them. So that's a very thoughtful choice that I really appreciated. But on the subject of language, I mean, that goes into questions I have for you about translation like in parts of the book that you found like very interesting to translate or maybe challenging to translate honestly it's funny by far the hardest thing to translate from japanese into english notwithstanding tagami just in general is high school culture it's like (laughs) it's so different and it may even just be basic things like i don't think americans can understand what art club means in a Japanese high school. It's like serious business. It's not just like, you know, because we unfortunately in our public schools have so little arts curriculum, but like, you know, when he says he's in the art track, unless you're at a fine arts school, it's not really going to make sense. Or like the way that they talk about homeroom is a little different or, you know, the sort of emphasis they place on study groups or even just like little gestures like cleaning the hallways or, you know, changing your shoes, like those little things, all of those little gestures that don't exist in Western high schools. I think that that was the toughest one. And like even... It just kind of occurred to me, like the first scene, they're getting on a bus. And uh, I know that in a lot of especially bigger cities, it's like the most normal thing to take public transit to school. But like, you know, this is in the suburbs, like these kids are not this isn't in Tokyo. So like, in my head, I'm imagining like, okay, what are readers thinking when they see this in English? Like, you know, kids taking a functioning public bus by the beach to their high school, or like that they have really exceptional, you know, arts and culture curriculum, or maybe not even exceptional, just sort of acceptable. So that was kind of a thing. And um, I think after that, it's like, I always struggle with just mundane cultural gestures to like the dinner table or like, I forgot what it was. One of them ordered something at a cafe and like, it doesn't quite translate apples to apples. And I just thought I'm going to have to just come up with the next best thing or kind of use that sort of Japanese jargon and kind of do a wink wink at all the people who really in the know. I I can't recall exactly what it was, but it was something like a parfait or something where I was like, I think like a general market reader is going to be like, what is, what is a parfait? Whereas like anybody who's read a manga is going to be like, oh, totally. (laughs) So yeah. Oh, I think, is that a scene between now and Mizuki? They ordered like these desserts or? Yeah, I think that might be it. Yeah. And it was like, I may be misremembering this, but I could have sworn it was like, if you've been to a Japanese cafe or have read a lot of manga, then you're like, I recognize this. But it was like, I can't remember exactly what it was. But anyway, the school, I think far and away, the most challenging translations are high school mores and like just the school setting. No, that's really interesting, especially because it's so specific. And it's also probably always changing slightly as the years go by, different generations come in school culture. 
and also to try and match like Japanese school culture to what an American or English reader understand where <laughs> that culture is also always evolving too. Uh, yeah. yeah, I can totally see how that's, that's a constant learning experience. I mean, uh, just speaking personally, you know, I've been working alongside some high school kids uh, making a short film for this nonprofit organization I, I'm part of. And like, we had some notes on the script that was like, oh, I don't think, uh, you know, as from a perspective of a high schooler, uh, I don't think that a high school kid would actually say this and stuff like that. <laughs> and it's, so I feel like, oh, I'm not that far out of high school. Am I that out of a touch already? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. I think if I try to be in the mind of a high schooler today, I mean, it's like that whole euphoria meme, right? It's like, <laughs> the high school can't possibly be real. But um, a lot of kids are like, uh, yeah, actually, it is that chaotic. For my money, I thought your translation went very naturally. And uh, as someone Thank who you. has been working with kids, I think, yeah, I could definitely feel like these are things kids would realistically say in these situations. Well, it's funny that you mention it now because I'm just realizing too, you know, I have to do, I think everybody who's not in high school writing about high schoolers, which is basically everybody, right? Like there are very few published high school authors. But, uh, you know, I think we're constantly negotiating with like, it's exactly what high school is, is negotiating between childhood and adulthood. So it's like, you know, sometimes they have to be childlike and other times they have to be mature beyond their words. So it's interesting. Tagami kind of set him up himself up for a second challenge, <laughs> you know, by like depicting so many high school students. For sure. And also probably again the mindset of a teenage girl <laughs> now yeah. in Musky too. <laughs> Someone who's mostly been drawing of the perspectives of adult men. Yeah, no <laughs> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. We should talk to him about that. What was that like? <laughs> <laughs> No, I appreciate that he took on that challenge to try and depict characters in this setting. And again, this intergenerational friendship between these characters. And I really do feel like this is a really cool evolution in what topics he's trying to explore and communicate since My Brother's Husband. I mean, My Brother's Husband was like from the perspective of like a gay man trying to communicate to like straight a readership like, hey, you know, here's what being gay like means. And it's not like this alien concept living and being as a gay person like trying to reach out and create a sense of understanding and in doing that you know centering like this straight protagonist uh you know who is like observing and understanding his brother's husband the gay character in the series mike like from kind of outsider's perspective here we are in our colors i appreciate that he's centering you know a gay teen protagonist and like it's about him like forming and learning from an elder gay person as like a mentor and just genuinely a friend and i really uh, appreciate seeing that relationship and also again like with the intention of like trying to uh, thinking about like what would have been something i would have really valued and, and needed and appreciated when i was a gay teen like just having again that mentor figure and just that sense that he is not alone and he has someone he can confide in and like can learn from someone who's been through his situation and can give him advice i thought was so very valuable and interesting and even of course he's still exploring questions of allyship and kind of 
understanding queer people from, you know, another perspective. I like my presence through the character of now and the parents, but I, I really appreciate that. It's like kind of a, a shifting in perspective and then an evolution of like the conversations being had. Yeah, I think that's an apt description of what was going on. You know, he's talked numerous times about how the readers for these general audience books are not necessarily gay people, right? It's like, what's the story that a street person needs to see? So like, even though this Art Colors is really him talking to his younger self, it's also just being realistic about the publisher and the setting. And that's what I think now is a good stand-in from that perspective. Yeah, completely. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I appreciate that he's able to balance that. Like, he's still able to, you know, write for that wider audience that includes, like, straight people. Uh, but he's also, you know, by centering, like, a, a gay protagonist, he's also able to go a little more deeper into talking about, you know, more personal experiences uh, from that perspective. And that's something I found very valuable, like kind of thinking back and relating to, you know, Sora's situation and his experiences. And also kind of that wish that in a similar situation in when I was in high school, I didn't really have like a queer community in a, in a sense or queer elders to talk to. And so I appreciated like kind of putting myself back in that time uh, and kind of seeing a character, you know, being presented that and being able to navigate like these, these feelings and questions that I, I know so many people definitely personally grapple with and could use uh, an outlet and just that reassurance that, hey, no, there's someone else out there, you're not alone in, in feeling this way. And you will find people who will understand you, people you'll be comfortable and confiding in. And you'll find that quiet place, that community that you're looking for. Yeah, I just want to say real quick, um, just from the perspective of someone who is, you know, cishet, isn't really gay myself, uh, reading through this book, I myself am not gay, but I, I feel like I could still relate to those feelings and those ideas of like wanting to find a community and wanting to find people you can confide in and just wanting to be myself in general. So just on that general level alone, like I felt like I really got a lot out of this book. Yeah, yeah. I think too, I mean... Who doesn't want to discover that perfect little cafe that's just for you? <laughs> exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, gosh, that cafe alone, it's like, what a great idea. And uh, yeah, just like as a high schooler, I think I would have loved nothing more to have been in a place where I was treated like an adult patron with like Same, respect yeah. and yeah. like, you know, just an identity formation at that age is so crucial. Like a safe space. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a retreat from like kind of the outside world, just your own little world inside this cafe. Yeah. And it was so nice to see that being found for Sora, but then also as the story progressed, him realizing that he doesn't need that physical place mm -hmm. to find that. He can, he found that in the connections he formed with Alamia and now. And even then, if those people leave his life, he can think back to that and he can think with hope and confidence that he can find that again uh, in other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's funny now that we're talking about that cafe, I'm realizing, you know, the saddest thing that happens is that it gets demolished by weather, right? And yeah. um, I was thinking a lot about this mural that Amamiya commissions. And, you know, what a interesting narrative leap that is. Because that's kind of a bold invitation just to ask a high school student to draw, you know, an interior mural. And, you know, there was like, I, I could totally tell he was making a little bit of a message about like what it means to respect your own work. Like, 
Mm-hmm. No, I am oh going to pay you for it. Like, please let me pay for it. I'm going to pay for your that time. That was a great conversation. You know, I think that was a direct call out to all the young artists out there. Like, totally. no, don't 100%. work for me. <laughs> Expect your work. It yeah. has value. Value A hundred percent. Tagame said, pay artists for their work. Yeah. 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 Value, your work. value yourself, which can write even more broadly. In the book. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Even if it meant, you know, it was going to be not long for the world, right? It was very short-lived and the process was really valuable. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's another thing I appreciated is that, like, even though the cafe is just, or even though the mural is never completed, you know, it doesn't invalidate that experience and it doesn't invalidate everything that was built in the process of that, I mean, we have that moment of Amamiya just kind of lamenting and kind of despairing us. Oh, was there any point to this? You know, maybe it was too late for me to make a change for my life. And then Sora reaches out to him like, no, I mean, I really was changed in a profoundly positive way thanks to meeting you. You really helped me. And that's something that I'm always going to treasure. And I really appreciated that message is that, you know, sometimes relationships can be fleeting. Your, your circumstances, situations fleet. Sometimes you'll encounter roadblocks and things would overwork out. But that doesn't mean that your experiences uh, working towards things you cared about. And, you know, experiences with people you care about are invalidated. Those are things to treasure. And those are things that have a profound effect on you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I was really sad that the cafe had to be destroyed, but I took that as like an invitation for both Sora and Amamiya to like uh, encourage them to both kind of like go out and kind of be more of themselves and maybe not possibly have to use the cafe as like a crutch. I don't know if maybe I'm overreaching on that, maybe. I think you're right. And it sort of speaks, I have to say, just like psychically in Japan, you really do have to brace yourself for that kind of destruction. It's hap- It happens repeatedly, and it's like become embedded in a part of its religious cultures. And um, I know this wasn't explicit, but I wonder if it was implicit that that's us with all things, right? Like, it's, I don't want to be hokey, but like that meme, um, it's all about the friends we made along the way. But like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, these these structures are impermanent, but the bonds are, are real. For sure. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. You have to be prepared to leave your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In order to be able to make new connections in order to find new places for yourself to freely be. And I mean, it is by going out of his comfort zone that Sora was able to finally confess to someone that he is gay and for that time, find that place where, you know, he could find oasis, he could find a personal place where he could feel comfortable being himself. And even though that place is a story now, that's something that, you know, having the experience of done it once before, he can do it again. And that's why I really like the visual of all these different doors he's seeing in front of him. Like after thinking about confessing to him now and then confessing to his parents, he's like, oh, I feel this little dissatisfaction because I recognize now that, oh, this is something that I'll probably need to keep doing, you know, time and time again. Nobody just comes out just once. But uh, in that same way, you don't find just that one thing you're satisfied with, the one place you're satisfied with just once. You can find that over and over again, too. Mm, I like that. Yeah. Um, Should we get into, like, final thoughts and uh, head on out? 
Uh, because yeah, I, I know. I mean, yeah. Anne, I really want to ask you this, especially because you wrote when the book came out on your Instagram that this book, like, was something that you obviously you had been working on this for such a long time, but you wrote that it really resonated with you so personally. And I really want to get your, you know, full thoughts on that. Um, I think what's changed since I started working on it, since it first came out, and now, most notably, I've had a child, and I've moved from New York to Philly to pursue a career in a totally different industry, and, you know, I think parenthood has totally transformed a lot of things. And in an interesting way, it's actually helped me kind of understand my own sexual identity in a more profound way. Not the least of reasons because I had, you know, like a little boy come out of my body. (laughs) (laughs) But like, that was a real um, inflection point for me. But what it actually did is sort of changed all of my understanding of love. And I didn't think before I had the child, actually, that I was capable of thinking of multitudes of love like what it means to engage in love and to feel it despite it being painful or accepting love in ways that I didn't want. Like, I guess before I kind of just wanted love to look like a very comfortable feeling that did nothing but make me feel good. And I'm learning that that's it's so much more complicated than that. There's family obligation, there's responsibility, there's unrequited love, which I've absolutely experienced you know, like that crush feeling. Yeah. God, it's so specific, isn't it? Like when yeah. you're just madly in love and can't do anything about it. And uh-huh. you just know, you just know, just every fiber of your body just knows exactly what it wants. But the world is like, nope, you know, that kind of love. None of those flavors and shades of love were really obvious to me before. And as I was reading it again in in my very own words, I was really struck by it and found it so helpful. And in a similar way to all of you and Tagami himself felt like very seen and like, oh, wow, this actually might act, this might actually be a story about me too. And I mean, I don't know. I, it's not like I hadn't experienced a lot of different kinds of love before, but, um, yeah, that was a big part of it. Um, yeah, I think that's it. I mean, that's the short and the long of it. That is wonderfully, beautifully put. Seriously. Um, so in conclusion, uh, go buy our colors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we went through a full spectrum of like yes. many shades, of many reasons that it's such a fascinating, wonderful, wonderful story. I agree and I appreciate your stating that as well. <laughs> No, it was just so lovely to talk about it. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you for allowing <laughs> us to read it thanks to your translation and the wonderful work you've been doing bringing over Tagami's work over. Oh, thank you. And yeah, it's always a pleasure to talk to you about the work you're doing. Uh, and hopefully we can have more conversations about Tagame, gay manga, and all the other great stuff you're doing in the future. Absolutely. I will be in touch soon when we do our next thing. Wonderful. But until then, would you like to let people know where they can find the work you're doing? And as you mentioned on top of the show, you are doing a lot. <laughs> Um, well, anything I'm doing, you'll find out about at anishi.com or at my blog, which actually is really more of like a live journal <laughs> these days. <laughs> 
And then Asian Arts Initiative, I do want people to know about such a great organization here in Philadelphia. We support emerging and mid-career Asian American artists of any discipline. And yeah, go look for our colors at your favorite bookstore or go to bookshop.org, you know, if going into stores isn't for you. And I think that's it. Wonderful. Thank you again. I think we really painted a wonderful portrait of everything that made All Our Colors such a gorgeous, beautiful book and story. And now I think it's time for us to put up a new canvas as we map out (laughs) all sorts of other really colorful things in a rainbow of our community shoutouts as we head into the wrap of our show. Thanks again to Anne for joining us for a very wonderful, very thoughtful discussion on our colors. There's so much we had to say about the series. And so much we didn't say. Yes, and that brings us to what we'll now kind of go into before we get into a wrap is that we did have some straight thoughts that we were not able to bring up on the conversation that we just wanted to briefly mention. So in terms of straight thoughts, one thing I wanted to start off with is that when we were talking about the resolution of the series and how we found that, hey, there was a realization that was come to that sometimes friendship is more valued than necessarily needing to move into a romantic space with someone you really like or care about. This is kind of what Sora kind of ultimately reconciles with his feelings for Yoshioka is that, you know, he has these deep feelings for Yoshioka, but at this point he realizes that right now he's okay with just being friends. He had this realization after really talking uh, with Mr. Amamiya about like how his feelings and his kind of desires and wants and enviousness of straight couples he's seeing of like what he, he wanted in his relationship relationship with Yoka and then he realized oh I think that I am fine right now with just this closeness and it leaves us up with a potential for the future of like when Sora may ever feel confident in coming out to Yoshioka or comfortable with like kind of maybe feeling out how he feels about him. But I also wanted to just bring this out just to say that I also like this as a reflection in Now's arcs through the manga, which we didn't quite talk about her relationship, her feelings for Sora that kind of be developed. You know, Now and Sora were childhood friends and at the beginning of the story, she doesn't necessarily think of him romantically, even though she's very close with him. She doesn't quite understand kind of changing social perceptions of their friendship and how close they are. But when her friend is like kind of positing this idea of like, oh, is it that maybe you like Sora or Sora likes you? That's kind of when she really first starts to kind of search her own feelings of like, does she romantically like Sora and so we see her kind of become a little more flustered or become a little more unsure about like how she feels about him and then you can see very clearly a a little bit of disappointment and surprise when she finds out that he's gay and uh, you know another thing we didn't touch about is that I really like kind of the subtlety of Gengoro Tagami's like expressions and how he communicates so much with just like (laughs) simple eye movements and so you'll have a lot of moments moments where characters are having kind of a tense conversation with someone and they just kind of wince a little bit yeah and so like there's this one moment where like you know in Sora really coming out uh, and confessing to now when they're sitting at the like childhood spot you know she kind of gives that little wince when she, she's asking him do you not like girls uh, and you have a lot of those kind of subtle like kind of character acting moments in the manga where she's like kind of clearly a little disappointed that 
had her feelings first or will probably be unrequited. But of course, she still is there for him as a friend and ally. And of course, we talked before about her allyship journey and the realizations of realizing, oh, it's really difficult to keep the secret and it can really suck. And now I understand how Sora is feeling. But to tie it back more into the friendship aspect of like her and Sora's relationship, she is throughout the manga kind of like trying to figure out like how she feels about Sora, like what she wants to do with like these romantic feelings that she know really can't go anywhere. And she comes to a similar conclusion to what Sora finds with Yoshioka. And there's this conversation near the end of the manga where Sora is just thanking her for being such a good friend to him. And we kind of have this moment where like now kind of embraces that that Sora has really found in her someone to rely upon. And she is thankful in that and it's all like kind of communicated quietly communicated through her reaction to Sora talking to her but I really appreciated that and I also appreciated you know at the end of the series like in the final chapter we have this moment where like you know now's friend who had like the crush on Sora and like tried to confess to him and then was like kind of interrogating her and Sora about like whether they were an item and then also you know that kind of caused a rift in her friendship like at the end in the final chapter she's that friend has already like moved on yeah uh, and she's like comes back and like immediately patches things back up and now like you know really excited about her new boyfriend and then now kind of has this kind of melancholic little expression of like oh you know time heals all wounds and so i kind of like that sentiment you know as a closure to argue like you know she's still dealing with those kind of lingering feelings that lingering heartbreak of knowing that her feelings are not going to go anywhere but also she also comes to the realization that oh no it's possible to move on from this heartbreak and also possible to move forward i really like that expression and also of course that time really does heal all wounds sentiment is something that applies very broadly to the characters in series especially with amamiya's character arc as we explore you know he spent decades of his life hiding who he really was and having this whole utter life with a family. And then he, like, just suddenly cuts that all off, which causes a lot of heartbreak for his entire family. But this sentiment applies to him, too, and implies to Sora is that even with, like, all the, the struggles the setbacks and pain you may experience in your life, you know, so long as you kind of keep moving forward and striving to find a future for yourself, you know, those things can heal with time or can be reconciled with time. And we kind of see that almost like immediately in Amamiya's case again with his conversation with his wife pretty much the next day after she basically kind of uh, caused a big tantrum in his cafe. It's like already then they're all starting to kind of uh, reconcile their relationship and also start to, to move on and form a healthier relationship. And so, you know, we I think that, and also, of course, with Amamiya, we ha- I mentioned before that big moment of, like, when his cafe is destroyed after the hurricane, him, like, kind of bemoaning that, oh, everything was too late for him, for him to think that he could come up with a new life and start new dreams, you know. He, he's a character that was very much, you know, still trapped in his own past in terms of the guilty bill but this sentiment also applies to him especially even someone in their 60s even you know no matter your age
age, you know, with time, the wounds of the past can heal and you can move forward to create new relationships and kind of like fill the kind of break in your heart just a little, little bit. You know, I, I kind of think of a visual metaphor kind of actually from a short film I watched recently that I thought applies to this really well. Of Like, a, you know, in the short film, like a girl lost her pet horse uh, and then, you know, she didn't think she'd ever be able to love another horse again. But, you know, she she did meet other horses. And over time, you know, we saw like a cracked heart. And then when we check in on her again and her reflection of like, oh, what time, you know, that crack actually kind of healed up. My heart kind of got back together again. And so, you know, metaphor. You know, I think about that and I think about, oh, yeah, I, I really like the sentiment Tagami is communicating here and how, like, again, in all of the core characters for a main trio character and also some of the side characters, that the sentiment of hopefulness, of optimism, of, like, being able to, that there is a bright potential in everyone's future if you keep moving forward in your life, no matter the traumas, the pains you may face. And I just think that's a very sweet message, and of course, uh, a very important message for a lot of people who go through struggles in their life, but especially for a lot of, you know, queer people, both young and old, who have had, you know, some really difficult experiences. I think it's just a, a very, very powerfully cathartic message, so... I just really appreciate that aspect about it that I didn't feel we kind of fully uh, encapsulated in the discussion. So I just wanted to spend some time to just talk about it here. No, for sure. Um, can I just throw out one thing real quick that uh, I don't think I mentioned in the discussion either? Something I really enjoyed about our colors that I think was, I don't know if subtle's the right word, but it's just something that's just kind of thrown out there and like, they don't really like spend a whole lot of time on it, which I think is nice in a mainstream work that Amamiya has a sex life and has had a sex life. And that's just normal. Like, I, I like that he throws that out there and like, it just feels normal to mention. I don't know. It's something about that really kind of caught me off guard. Like, of course, of course, this guy has had sex before. Yeah. At a casual sex life. Yeah. He's just mentioning that, oh, like on this dating app, I found a lot of men and I ha had sex with them, didn't form like a lot of lasting relations with them. And yeah, it is just a casual that I think is is like a very bold choice for Tagami to put in the work is like just saying because like a lot of times when you have gay characters in media they are gay but we don't really see them in relationships we don't you know have any talk about them having actual sex this is especially true of like you know American sitcoms of back in the day yeah they can come off like kind of sexless in a way yeah so again it is pretty bold for like to come to just you know casually mention that yes Amamiya he does have like a fuller sex life you know that we're not seeing but like we know yeah like he doesn't hide that and yeah and it's acknowledged so I, I do really appreciate that as well Actually, on the subject of sexuality, there's another point that I appreciated about the work that Takami actually brought up on Twitter when the book was published in English, is that he mentioned that because this story is told from a teenager's perspective, he went out of his way to make sure that he wasn't, like, sexualizing uh, the teen character. Yeah, I saw that, and too. Especially, you know, he was, when he was trying to communicate, like, oh, like, Sora finds Yoshioka attractive, he made sure to portrayed in a way that we are very clear that it is Sora's perspective, it is what Sora, the character, is finding so attractive and appealing about Yoshioka. And so, 
yeah, I just wanted to mention that Tagami was thinking about that and paying very careful attention into how uh, the sexuality of his teen characters were communicated. The sexuality of, like, all his characters, I'm sure, as well, but especially with Sora and his uh, perception of other people he's attracted to. Yeah, I, I saw that tweet around too, and um, I really appreciate that from Tagame, because I feel like that's something that not a whole lot of mangaka really take into account as much. Right, I mean, we read a whole lot of manga where we're seeing teen characters sexualized all the time. Yeah. In a very exploitative uh, way. Gross ways, very yeah. gazy ways. Mm-hmm. So, Tagame... You know, I was really making sure that, no, this is the perspective of the character. You know, when the scene where, like, Sora is just admiring Yoshioka's body after he's, you know, just finished, like, a big baseball practice or whatever. It's like, yeah, no, you're meant to understand, like, this is Sora really noticing it in a way that, yeah, it makes sense for a teenager to do. It's a similar case in terms of, like, now's gaze towards Sora when she's also kind of noticing his physicality. It's, like, very clear that, no, we are seeing the characters uh, and their appeal through the eyes of another character. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the moment from, uh, because I think Crossmanage that we've covered on the show before had a few moments like this too where like you know Sakurai is hanging out with a bunch of you know girls his age and you know he's obviously interested in girls so he's gonna notice girls in a certain way and I I remember moments like that in Crossmanage where I felt like okay this doesn't feel like gross at all or exploitative like he's a teenage boy like he's gonna notice certain things and that's that's healthy. Yeah, I think Cross Managed had some moments where I think it kind of towed the line or overstepped. Like, there are some That's moments fair. with, like, the rival lead, uh, where I think there are a lot of, like, kind of, oh, boobs jokes with her, or some boobs jokes with her that are kind of more in the realm of, well, this is ne- not necessarily from the character's perspective gaze, but the reader's gaze. That's but, fair, yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, I still think that in general, Kaito does a very respectful job with his characters uh, and his work, and I definitely do agree that when it comes from like the perspective of like the female characters towards like Sakurai especially like we definitely see like very much an in-character's perspective on a teen character noticing someone's sexuality yeah yeah but uh, I mean to apply back to our colors like yeah that's a, a detail I really appreciated about the work and then in reminding myself, I think on the series, I also just wanted to bring up again, I think we talked about a little bit in this question, but I do really appreciate the portrayal of Zora's parents and also just the portrayal of just the difficulty of like having well-meaning parents or family members, uh, but then not quite understanding you or trying to push you in a direction in terms of really trying to force a relationship or trying to be responsible parents, but like in a really awkward way that it's like kind of ignoring like what you are ready for uh so i appreciated that conversation between sara and his mom where she's like trying to give him the safe sex talk about now (laughs) but by completely misreading the signs of what the relationship is as a friendship and also you know completely oblivious to his actual sexuality but i also appreciate the nuance of that is where she can recognize that like it did not go over well and so when his dad comes home she's like telling him oh man i tried to be the good responsible parent but i think i blew it so again i I appreciate the complexity of the parents characters but also the like kind of the awkward tenseness of like having those conversations with your parents 
and having to kind of put up your own mask to kind of hide of like how you really feel about it because you're kind of comfortable like just having a honest conversation. Yeah, it, <laughs> it's it's also awkward in the way where like his mom clearly doesn't want to like say exactly what she wants to say because the whole conversation is basically her being like, "Hey, be sure to like you know and use a you know what." <laughs> I mean, she's saying yeah, she's saying it in a very tee-hee way. Of, like she's kind of like she's also kind of a little embarrassed to like explicitly say what she means even though she is trying to get the safe sex talk so and it's the same kind of behavior we see later it's like when she's kind of like a little flustered by Sora coming out to her she's like trying to diffuse the situation with like humor which was like kind of not tonally appropriate even though she's trying to be like kind of the responsible parent you know she also has like her own little hang up of also being just able to be blunt uh, and be able to talk about things without like not feeling a little awkward or embarrassed about them so that's that's another detail about the character of Sora's mom that I feel like kind of fleshes her out and makes her feel even more like realistic in that way is that you know we can see that pattern of her behavior in those two situations. It, it kind of reminds me of that one King of the Hill episode where uh, they have to try to have the talk with Bobby but Peggy can she has to practice saying penis <laughs> yeah <laughs> penis um okay but i think we should get to the big thing we both wanted to talk about during our discussion but just didn't have the time for unfortunately um why don't you start this off because the thing is this is something i really wanted to talk about during the discussion but after kind of thinking about it more i do realize that context is kind of important for this so yeah yeah and that's kind of what i had also brought up when we did discuss it before it went on is the contextual understanding of what the scene represents but basically the moan we're talking about is of course and spoilers i guess i, I don't know why you listen to any discussion <laughs> of ours that are actually reading material since we're not a spoiler friendly podcast but you know so spoilers but in the final chapter of course a big moment uh kind of like a note of closure between sora and Amami's relationship is that Sora asks if he would kiss him so that he could have like kind of a memory of him that he can carry with him for his life because you know his meeting him you know changed his life in a profound way and he's very important to him so they're kiss each other and of course you know on its face it is a scene where a 60 year old person is kissing a you know teenager and that is not something that is like the most comfortable thing and you know there's a lot of conversations to be had around like kind of this fear-mongering that has been going around about the kind of grooming and stuff like that yeah. which is a conversation that you know is like brought up in the book of like characters like being suspicious of Amelia's attentions towards Sora and stuff like that and like just kind of the ridiculousness of those claims so like on a surface again it's like a six-year-old person kissing a teenager and if that's not something you know you want to see it's not something that is super comfortable you know you're not gonna really like that development but you again it's important to understand it in the context so Anne you know had a very thoughtful observation on this when we kind of asked her about her thoughts on this is that the series as a whole is kind of about exploring love between people different forms of love between people and not just romantic and this moment is kind of like an expression, again, of just like love and a bond between Alami and Sora that is not romantic or sexual. It is just kind of like uh, another expression of that. And, you know, that's also kind of how I... I see it as like kind of like a kiss is just kind of uh, an expression of affection for another person. And, you know, 
there are different like cultural contexts uh, given for kisses, you know. I was listening to Modern Magnation's discussion of the book, and Morgana brought up that, you know, in Italian culture, it is just kind of an acceptable thing to kiss someone on the mouth just as, like, a, a greeting and it's a sign of affection. So, you know, in different cultures, like, a kiss does not have the same necessary weight that it has as a romantic exchange exclusively, or certainly not a sexual act. So in this context, again, like just thinking about what it represents for the characters in the story, it's very clear that there's no romantic feelings that are going on between Zora and Anamiya. It's never ever hinted at. It's never really explored. They don't see each other in that way. And it really is just Sora really cares about this person and he just wants to kiss him as kind of like a sign of affection. And I mentioned this and that's how I described it. For me, like him kissing Alamia is creating like this memory as an anchor point for him to think back on his experiences with Alamia and the time they spent together. So for me, I think that it really is not a line that is crossed without reason and it's not crossed in a way that is like inappropriate in terms of like what it is trying to communicate and what is representing for the characters in the story. So, yeah, I was thinking about even now that I even have, like, an even more relaxed stance on it. Before, I was like, um, it, you know, it's still maybe flat out not okay to portray. But then as I was thinking about it, also hearing other perspectives on kissing and stuff like that, I was like, oh, well, you know, actually, it's really not that big a deal. It's very clear just throughout the context of the story how these characters feel about each other and also what this is trying to represent communicate. So, yeah. I think if you're, it's something you're still uncomfortable with, you're not going to like it. But I think that there is a lot of context to the moment in the story that is worth appreciating and understanding from kind of a narrative level and kind of from the perspective of like, what is Tagami trying to get across in this moment, in this scene, in this relationship between these characters? And also remember, in keeping in mind how careful he was not to, you know, sexualize Sora and teen characters in the work and how this was really not a work ultimately just exclusively about romantic feelings or especially not about you know sexual feelings it was just a book kind of exploring love and relationships uh, and connections between people uh, definitely thinking of the work in that lens and what Takami was exploring in that lens you know I think the kiss makes a lot of sense it's like a big moment to kind of just have as the conclusion for like Sora and Anamiya's kind of you know relationship with each other and also for, from Sora's perspective and Sora's part like again just creating a memory for himself that he can latch onto, that he can always go back to, to reflect on all of the experiences had with Anamiya. So I appreciate it in that lens and light. I think the moment works very sweetly in that way. And as I, I also mentioned it when we talked about it with Anne, but I think Tagami's illustration of it in this big two-page spread was rendered very beautifully with the much softer line work that is lots sketchier, the very beautiful kind of more hazy kind of shading effects and more little blurred effect. Uh, you know, it really is creating like this sense of like, oh, this is kind of like like a ephemeral moment in time for these characters, like ephemeral special moment of time for the characters. 
that they're just appreciating them and their friendship in their space. You know, them and their relationship with each other in the space. You know, that's what I'm talking about again with an anchor point. It's like thinking back. This is clearly presented as like, oh, this is like a memory. This is something, this is something that can turn back to, to think about. Which is like in the context how it is brought up. It is brought up in the context of sort of thinking back about it as a memory. So, yeah, I think it, it works contextually and narratively for what Takami is going for. Yeah, I, I just want to stress that even with the context, you know, for anyone listening to this, if you're still not comfortable with it, that's okay. Yeah, if you're still not comfortable, it's okay. You know, it's still something that, you know, it is also what it is on the surface, right? Yeah, for A sure. A 60 year old person can see a teenager. So, you know, if you're uncomfortable with that, you're going to be uncomfortable with that. But I, I think that contextually, it might also be because of how us as Americans just view kissing purely as a, a romantic thing, maybe. But like, still, like, I think that, yeah, it's still adult and teenager, not not something, not a boundary line that I would be super comfortable with seeing in real life. But also, I guess it is also worth mentioning and acknowledging that for a lot of queer youth, uh, having experiences like this with older queer people is a very realistic thing as part of their journeys in coming out and embracing their sexuality too. So there's a sense of realism there, but it also is not even going into that territory where this is, is a romantic or sexual exchange here. So again, it is like still something that you can be, you can have uh, your different feelings about. Uh, but I think that, yeah, I, I also just think it's important to acknowledge, you know, Takami's entire tensions with what the book is about, what the story is about, and then why he might have chosen to have this moment between them. Yeah, I'm kind of glad that we waited a bit to talk about this because initially when I got to that moment, I almost viewed it. Um, this is this is me speaking at the time. I'm not saying I necessarily feel this way about this now. But initially when I got to that moment, you know, it was one of those things where it's like, oh, man, I'm really loving this series like all the way through. I had like no issues with it up until that point. Um, and in the moment, you know, this was something I was going to bring up on the show originally. In the moment, it reminded me of going through Descending Stories for the first time in the way where it's like, and I don't want to go too into specifics for anyone who hasn't read Descending Stories, but Descending Stories is also a series that is one of my favorites of all time. I love it. But Descending Stories also has this thing where it's like, it's really good up until uh, they have to throw in this weird thing at the end that's kind of gross the more you think about it. But for most people, it doesn't like ruin the story. It's just like one weird little wrench where it's like, oh, we got to, oh, we, I guess we got to throw this in. But uh, you can kind of yeah, ignore it, you know? <laughs> about the ambiguity of that moment, too. It's like, yeah. well, is this really truth that is being told? Yeah. Or is like character humoring this guy's crazy theory? Yeah. So you're not really, you can have that ambiguity of like saying, oh, you can believe in one way if that you want that or, or you could really believe or you could really say, oh, no, this is just bull that she's just humoring. Yeah, like I'm, I'm not saying I'm not saying it's exactly the same thing. I don't want to come across like that. I'm bringing that moment up because it's a wrinkle. It's a similar wrinkle in how you may feel about yeah, it. Yeah, I bring it up because it's like I felt that exact same way in the moment reading our colors like, oh, is this going to be like the one thing I'm going to have to grapple with in an otherwise like really great story. And I think currently I feel like, okay, I can be okay with it the more I think about it. But I think I still kind of have to work through my feelings in terms of like, I, I think I still have to kind of work up to being okay with it for right now. But I think I can be, I guess, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, like it, it doesn't ruin the story for me, obviously, because in the moment I was afraid it was going to. But 
you know, like I said, I, I understand the context is I guess is what I'm trying to get across. And I think the more I think about it and the more I kind of stew on it, the more I can be okay with it and the more I can accept it. But it is also one of those things where I am kind of afraid of the, and I, I probably shouldn't worry about this because like who gives a shit, but like part of me kind of worries about the possibility of like the wrong person finding this book and like making a big stink about that in particular. Yeah, I mean, people make big stinks about much less. I That's mean, if true. we can yeah. go back to the whole mouse conversation, a book showing the horrors of the Holocaust and then showing naked people being sorted out to line up to work in death camps is the, is the line. The, the war the, crimes aren't the problem. Naked. It's the, the naked, naked people that's the, the problem. Problem, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, all these, like, Jeez. moralizing crusaders who are, like, bad fate advocates, yeah. you know, they're gonna, they're always gonna find something to criticize. Just inherently a work being about a queer person is going to be something that they're gonna criticize as being, like, uh, political or inappropriate or whatever, you know? My final thoughts on this in particular is that I still think it's a little messy, but again, I, I understand where it's coming from, and I can learn to be okay with it. It's just how I feel personally. Yeah, I think that's very valid. But yeah, I guess, was there anything else we wanted to talk about? I mean, we said it on the discussion, but if you haven't already, you should definitely go check this out. Like, this is easily... I'm still grappling with this too. I don't know if I like this more than My Brother's Husband. I think I almost like them about the same, but I think for me, My Brother's Husband is still the work that I like a little bit more than it. It, it. This is gonna be one of those things where like, depending on the day you ask me, I might say, oh, I like Our Colors more, or I like My Brother's Husband more. Like I, I like them about the same. They're both very good works. Yeah, I mean, for me, Our Colors is more of what I wanted out of My Brother's Husband. It was so, you know, ever since I found out about it, and since reading My Brother's Husband, it has been the work that I've been really wanting to read from Nagami, so I was very glad to finally have, and it definitely delivered on what I wanted in terms of, like, a story about, you know, intergenerational friendship between two gay men. And them both kind of grappling with different experiences in their lives that, you know, uh, for me as a queer person, also in a queer community, interacting with and talking and, you know, being friends with and talking with, you know, queer folks of all ages. You know, it's something that for me, like, resonated much more strongly than my brother husband, which I still really like and love and appreciate. But especially, you know, because of, you know, let's look at, like, uh, the main family relationships in that series and then the way Tagami is kind of like trying to, you know, reach out to a mainstream audience to make them understand gay people and queerness a little better. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's still from a kind of distant perspective in My Brother's Husband. You know, it's from, it is like very much kind of like babies first, like learning about gay people in some ways. <laughs> you know, I don't mean that in a dismissive way, but it is like, you know, you have moments where like you have kind of, for someone who is queer, for someone who's kind of, had experience with queer people it's kind of like obvious that yeah I mean it's not wise like two people loving each other uh as the same sex different or more weird than two people opposite loving each other like why am I feeling uncomfortable about the idea of this or this person being around me you know checking by it that way you know it's it's still very well explored which is why I really like it it's very thoughtfully written you know by Tagami for a very intended purpose but it's also like again the audience for my brother's husband was very much to reach out to those straight readership who don't have much experience with queer people yeah. whereas with our colors like it, as i mentioned it is written for that same audience published in that same like magazine 
But again, it goes a step further because it act, it centers a queer protagonist that and has more interaction between queer people, uh, more conversations, more discussions of like experiences and how they differ across generations. And so there is like a lot more that I kind of really could kind of really sink my teeth into in terms of relating to that. And again, just also knowing the perspective behind it of Tagami kind of writing this in reflection for his like teenage self of not having really people in his life someone like in his life like Alamia as like a mentor figure or really any queer community when he was at that age and also not fiction like this to also kind of read in and learn that there are opportunities to find the communities out there you know that also made the work resonate and uh, warm my heart so much as well so for me, like, I, for a lot of personal reasons, Our Colors is my favorite, but they're both very excellent works. Tigami is a, just a really masterful storyteller. Yeah. Um, so very much looking forward to his next, like, mainstream, uh, publication title. And of course, you know, I'm also looking forward, uh, to picking up the Passion Ginger Tigami and reading just more of all of his works because it's, uh, he's just a really fantastic artist and very thoughtful, uh, in his, his story and also in his indulgences uh, in his erotic stuff so yeah just fantastic we're continuing to get more of his work published out here and it's it's a great summer for it to see both sides to Tagami's work too for sure but yeah I think that about does it for whatever stray thoughts we had on our colors uh, it definitely went on a little longer than I thought it would but you know you should expect that from us at this point. Um, yeah. But I think this is a good time to go into community shoutouts, Lum, if you want to do so. Yeah. And so a lot of my community shoutouts are going to be more thoughts on our colors if you still want more thoughts on the series. Actually, before I even get into those, though, you know, On talked a lot about her work on the show and all sorts of really cool stuff that he's doing but i definitely want to give a particular shout out to her series for why pbs movers and makers that she hosts basically you know looking at artists in the philadelphia community and basically kind of exploring their stories exploring a lot of different social topics like segregation in pools and i have really been enjoying watching the series i really find them really well produced documentaries and really interesting to learn about like this kind of artist collectors community that was spotlighted in one episode was like, wow, this is, this is really, really cool. And then really interesting conversations about like kind of this mural for like this politician with a very troubled history and relationship with the community and Frank Rizzo. Uh, and so yeah, I think that they spotlight a lot of really cool different artists in the, their community and a lot of really cool stories. So I really wanted to recommend the documentary series. So. I think they're on like kind of break right now for the summer, but they produced a lot of really good episodes this year. So definitely check those out and you can find and watch all of that for free on the, the YPBS website, which, you know, we'll link in the description. And as far as other stuff from Anne goes, you know, I really enjoy reading her blog, Letters from Annie, where she writes a lot of very reflective, contemplative posts about musing, like about love or about kind of like her life experiences. And I find she writes in such a very poetic and compelling way so i always find them very interesting and think they're very worth checking out for kind of like some very thoughtful uh, musings on love and life but also recently she posted about her goals with massive like she kind of posted a reflection post called ugliness where she was thinking about how at one point in time she kind of thought about a person jeremy lynn who is like an mba pro as like someone you know because of his body type you know was not like someone she saw as like kind of 
traditionally attractive in a way. But like as she grew up, she kind of kind of reconciled like those feelings and like her feelings on like Asian masculinity and particularly like buff Asian masculinity. And that's kind of what Massive's good was to kind of show, you know, that there are a lot of different types of large masculine Asian men in the world and how beautiful they are. And then kind of reflecting about her successes or that or like her investment in like publishing Massive and those works. And then, of course, how that has led to, you know, over the years working alongside Tagame and now like publishing two works this summer that shows kind of that spectrum in different ways in both of Tagami's books that she's worked on, Our Colors and Passions. So I thought that was a really, really thoughtful post and definitely want to share that especially, but definitely check out all of Anne's blog and all of her posts because there's some really, really thoughtful stuff there that she writes about. And then, if you want even more thoughts on our colors from Tagami's perspective, Paul Semmel interviewed Tagami. Kind of was mentioning excerpts or thoughts from the interview uh, during the conversation, but definitely check out the interview for himself because it goes a lot into what the goal of writing all colors was. Uh, thoughts about like the characters, some of his influences. So if you wanted to know, like he doesn't de- like delve too much into it, but you know, there's some interesting there's an interesting influence uh to our colors and in comparison that he makes to it and also he makes some very good recommendations of like other queer manga out right now that he thinks are like really epic making in his own words and uh, definitely for the titles that i've read that he highlights i most certainly agree and was glad to see them get his shout out endorsement and I, I think it's just a very very thoughtful interview just about like his his thoughts on writing the series and what he hoped readers would get out of it and hope he what he wanted to get out of it so really appreciated that and also again for more thoughts on our colors for more written pieces you know anime uk wrote a really really nice review about it and how it explores its teams and how it differs from our brother's husband actually goes into the team of color and how it's used in the work some thoughts on the translation and on the guy's art so i really appreciated covering it from uh, all those angles and i also really enjoyed rebecca silverman's review on our colors that she just recently posted and also talking about how it kind of has a surprisingly different framing than a lot of other queer stories about coming out and how well it's able to kind of cut right to the heart of things without feeling uh, preachy and just a lot of really great examples and looking at the spectrum of being queer and also understanding different characters examples of allyship and yeah I just really really appreciated her thoughts on the book and her reflections on like what made it such a, a compelling read and of course I mentioned them earlier but our good friends and Manga Machinations also had a very thoughtful, very good conversation on the book. Uh, even though it was about a book about teenagers, she, even Seamus liked it. So, Oh, wow. Huh. Oh, you haven't listened to the episode yet? But yeah, yeah no, she even Seamus liked it. So, uh, yeah, they just had a really great conversation on it. And uh, I again, I really appreciated a lot of their thoughts on the story, how it differed from my first husband in a way that for folks like McGraw, like made them appreciate it a lot more. They had, a, again, they had a very good conversation discussing the kissing moment in particular and how they felt about it. And I think Morgana especially made up a lot of very good points about it. Uh, and just discussing the work and the context of kind of broader queer f- 
fiction uh, that they've read and how it as a coming out story kind of relates to that and what makes it stand out. So I really appreciated their thoughts on the series. And yeah, I definitely, if you want another set of perspectives on it, highly, highly recommend them. Well, now, now I'm going to have to listen to that. Seamus liked the thing with teenagers in it. Is, is the world is the world going to end tomorrow? <laughs> I know, right? But yeah, no, it was that surprise for even the folks on the podcast. Like, Dakazu was not expecting it. And, you know, he was like, oh, wow. You know, so that was that was a good moment. But Seamus also had some very nice thoughts on the book. Mm, okay. So, yeah, yeah. So those are my recommendations. Basically, just more thoughts on our colors. You know, can't spread the love of the series of love and talking about it and what it's doing so well enough. So definitely, definitely go check them out. But, you know, we gave you uh, a nice... A nice little spectrum of different color options, you know, a nice little palette of, of things to check out to, like, paint your own listening uh, entertainment canvas. But as you are doing that, I think we are going to head out into the wrap-up of the show and where you can find us to refill your supply of interesting manga commentary and insights. All right. Well, while we head out to the art store and uh, fill up on some more colors, we want to thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of Manga Mavericks. We really hope you enjoyed it. And uh, I guess until the next episode, uh, we're just going to let you guys know where you could find us and our stuff, uh, starting with my good friend Lum. Where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lum Ramayasha on Twitter. It's Lum Ramayasha in a variety of places like Animation Revelation, Analyst, and Letterboxd. Wherever there's a Lum Ramayasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my reviews on Mavericks.com. Got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews planning to go out. Look forward to more in there. That's also going to find the other podcast I do, Love and Squad, the Yurisei Outsider Focus podcast I do with my good friend Andrew A.C. Yoshimura. We're discussing the wonderful Lucky World of Takashi's Yurisei Outsider. We're having a lot of fun covering the manga as it is being released by this media. The movies available streaming on Crunchyroll and on Blu-ray through Discotheque. And we are so excited to talk about the new reboot anime debuting later this fall. We have a ton of plans for the show, what we want to talk about, how we want to cover the new show. And so if you want some great discussion on a classic, super influential and super entertaining series and the works of Ruka Takahashi, definitely check us out. You can find us on Twitter at Squad. You can find us on YouTube by searching for our channel name in the search bar. We're also on every podcast platform you can think of, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Anchor. We also cross-post episodes in the Mongrats feed and post episodes early, oftentimes months early, on the Mongrats Patreon. And if you enjoy the art I make, the illustrations I draw for our shows, or the animations and illustrations I'm making in general, you can find that stuff on my Instagram at SidArtWorks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other stuff, you know, outside of Manga Mavericks that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Over there, you can click on the podcast page and uh, basically take a look at literally anything else I'm a part of, including, you know, what I'm doing currently, uh, whatever I'm not doing currently, uh, and even, you know, a lot of guest spots I've had on other shows over the years. So if you want to listen to literally anything else I've been a part of over my almost 10 years of podcasting, uh, you can find all my stuff, again, at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Click on the podcast page and you'll find all my stuff. 
Uh, but as for Manga Mavericks and everything else we do, uh, you can find every episode of the podcast at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash mavericks, where at the $2 tier, you will have the chance to listen to select episodes of the podcast, uh, depending on when we have them edited. Basically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited before we want to put it out on the main feed, we'll put it up on our Patreon first. Uh, but that also depends on what we have done at any given time. So really, if you want more reliable content, you should sign up for our $5 tier, uh, where we post a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. Uh, at the time we're putting this out, uh, the newest episode of our Manga Mavericks book club read-through of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 2, Battle Tendency, should be up currently we are doing a read through of battle tendency with our good friend grant at grant the thief on twitter uh it's been a lot of fun going through jojos and hopefully we can do more jojos after we're done with part two uh pretty soon um but for now you can listen to our coverage of part two and part one uh over at our patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks once again at the five dollar tier and basically the rest of our bonus content that we've been putting up you know over the past few years at this point uh but really when you sign up for our patreon it really helps us with the show and everything because everything that we make on our patreon basically goes back to keeping up the website keeping up the podcast and uh yeah basically anything you want to give helps so once again that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks that's really the best way for you guys to support us and everything we do um but as for everything else you could follow us on twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on tumblr at mavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mavericks, where we post different excerpts of the podcast, including some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Uh, email us anything at mavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what are your thoughts on our colors, my brother's husband, or any of uh, Gengoro Takame's works? Are you reading anything that you maybe want us to talk about on the show, maybe? Uh, you know, email us anything about manga, the podcast, or really anything. We love getting emails from you guys. Uh, and when we do get an email from you guys, uh, we'll read it on the show. So once again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Please email us. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts or on so many different platforms at this point. Uh, but especially on Apple Podcasts or even Spotify, uh, basically wherever you can do this. Uh, if you leave us a rating and a review, uh, it really helps the visibility of our show on these platforms and just in general we love getting feedback from you guys uh whether it be positive or negative because whatever feedback we receive from you guys really helps us figure out how to make the show as good as possible but yeah i think that's gonna be about it for this episode once again thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of the podcast this has been episode 209 of manga mavericks and we'll see you guys next time for episode 210 bye guys sayonara We should probably talk about, like, what Art Colors is about for those who haven't read it yet. Yes, and I want to turn it to you, and Like, as a translator and someone who knows the story very well, how would you describe Art Colors and describe the story for people? Um, I really think it's, um... Uh, sorry, my son's going to be in the background occasionally. No uh, it's, my... it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so...